Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. What personality trait of yours has gotten you in the most trouble? Uh, definitely, I'm a rebel. I've had over, like... 70 speeding tickets. Are you serious? I'm very serious. You, you could tell me if you exaggerated that. I did not. I did not. Holy but shit. I did lose track. So I seriously don't know. How are you not in jail? Because I'm older and it used to be there wasn't computers. And so if you uh, had a driver's license out of state and you got a ticket, they didn't transfer points among states. So I always mm. kept an out of state driver's license. Of course, now that I'm older and all that does come into play, I've honed down my uh, driving fast habits. But I grew up with a dad that was in the automotive industry. I mean, he we were at car races and car shows. I mean, my whole life was about that. And my dad used to get, he always had you know ten cars, and we'd get in one of his Ferraris or Jaguars, and we'd go hundred miles Whoa. an hour down the main street of our town. You know, he was just crazy oh like God. that. Just taught me to be crazy like that. So. I just have a bad habit of driving fast. Did, did you get the rebellious spirit from him, you think? For sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. What What about whenever you were a kid? Were you more rebellious back then? or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we tend to tame down. And then you have kids, and that really tames you down. And definitely got a what, lot of that out of my system when I was younger. What was the biggest downside of having kids? Oh, that's such an interesting question because I never wanted kids. I always thought it would be such a downside, like who would want to do that? And both of my girls were accidents and I couldn't imagine life without them. Like everything I thought would be so awful really wasn't. And I think the people that think kids are going to be so great and they're going to change my life, it's going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. They have such expectations that there's such downside, right? Because all they Mm -hmm. think about is this really cool, good stuff. And I thought it was all going to be shit and horrible and suck and you know, no freedom and no yes, naps yes, yes. and right. Yes. And so all of a sudden, like, it's like, oh, okay, it's not so bad. Like I don't get the downside. I don't miss napping. You know, they can go with me everywhere. They're per- perfectly portable. I don't have to give up my freedom. So for me, it was like just an anomaly that kids were actually cool and not this horrible burden that I thought they were going to be. Um, but the biggest downside I would say is just being responsible for raising ethical, moral, productive, happy um, people that are going to grow up and be the next generation. So that responsibility is a lot, but you know. Dana, I feel like we were meant to be talking right now because everything you said is exactly how I feel. I do not have kids. And listen, I live in the South and down here, if you don't have kids by 17, there's something wrong with you. Something's going on. And every, I just had Thanksgiving, all my family, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? I'm married, have a wife, got it all, got a pretty good job, all that good stuff. When are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? I'm just like, man, everything that you just said is exactly why I do not want to have kids. I'm not even joking. I'm dead serious. You are spot on. I'm like, first of all, I I like to travel. I don't want to stop traveling. I'm pretty lazy. I don't want to have to change a freaking diaper. I want to have freedom. Listen, if it's a Friday and I want to like go 
you know, play bingo or go have a drink or something like that. I want to be able to do that. I don't want to be woken up at two in the morning with a a screaming little thing. And these are literally all the reasons why I would not have a kid. I'm extremely selfish. I'm a millennial. We're all selfish and lazy. (laughs) So to hear you say that is really, really, really interesting. Um, You are like maybe only the second person I've heard say that. Would you describe yourself as a lazy and selfish person? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. Okay. Before you had the kids, because the lazy thing is what really intrigues me. Um, Because, for example, after work, I I could. Here's here's the situation I just cannot get past. Just worked all day. Um, Man, I'm freaking tired. Come home, lay on the sofa. It's like I barely feel like heating up a damn hot pocket. But now I have like a four-year-old running around saying, Daddy, play with me. And if I don't play with him, I'm a piece of shit. (laughs) So how, first of all, can you relate to that of coming home, being exhausted, and now you have a kid? And did that change when you actually have a kid? Did you like spontaneously get energy? Yeah, no, it definitely changed when I had kids. I wouldn't say I spontaneously got energy. Um, I don't know if I describe it that way, but um, these little beings are just so miraculous and precious that you just would do anything for them. I mean, that's really where I came from. Like I was just like you. I was so selfish. I didn't want to give up my time. I didn't want to give up my energy. I didn't want to give up my going out. I was a party girl. You know, wanted to be out all the time with my friends. I didn't want to give any of that up. And all of a sudden, none of it mattered. It was oh that fuck. that simple. None of that mattered. It's a spell. It's it, like kids. Yeah. It's it's like a magic trick. Yeah, it, it really was. It really was. And I just, it, it took me a little bit because um, I don't, I didn't have postpartum depression or anything. I was just like, I don't get it. I don't get how to be a mom. I don't get when is this going to feel natural? When is, when am I going to be good at this? Like I didn't get that. And that took me, I would say about six months. And then after six months, I was like, okay, I get it. Like I can do this. And, um, and from then on, it was just like none, none of the other stuff I thought was going to get in the way really mattered. They just give everything. And I have to tell you, it depends on the kid too, because my first mm. one was so easy traveled with her, took her to like the fancy, you know, New York style steakhouse or Chicago style, I guess, you know, that's the most expensive place downtown Minneapolis. She would just sit in a high chair and make not a noise for two hours. So I didn't have to give up anything for that one. The second one screamed and cried 24 seven. So I couldn't take her anywhere. (laughs) So, uh, but at least I got acclimated with a kid like, Oh my God, this is so easy. I used to go to the gym. I'd have her in that little pack on my chest, you know, a little baby Bjorn. I used to work out with her right on my chest. I mean, I didn't, she went with me everywhere and did anything like she was so easy. So that, that was a great acclimation into having a child. It really didn't change anything. I had her on a plane when she was, I had her in February in March. I was flying down to Florida for spring break. I mean, just didn't miss a beat. So. That, and, and you know, that is a good point too. And I've thought about that. Uh, I have a, a cousin who has maybe a one year old and this kid is so good. Oh my goodness. This kid is great, quiet when it should be, doesn't scream, you know, sleeps through the night, all of this. And I'm like, man, I, I would be the one to have the, the, the bad kid who's screaming. And, um, did you, did you ever have like an ounce of regret? Like, man, yeah, life, life was a little bit better before kids. No, 
Never. No. Isn't that crazy? And I That's used so to crazy. say before I had kids and I never wanted kids and people would say, you know, aren't you going to miss that? Or isn't that something you, or, you know, your clock is ticking or whatever. And I'd say, I'm sure if I don't have kids, I will always say I can never imagine my life having had kids. And I'm sure mm. if I have kids, I will always say I can't imagine having had a life without kids. So, and it was exactly that way. I mean, now that I have, they're 24 and 26 and I, it's like, I couldn't imagine life without them. Like they are like, I never had a real um, career path, a real passion for anything growing up. But once I had kids, it's like, oh, I get it. This is what, this is my passion. I love having these girls. So it just flipped a lot of switches for me. Yeah, that, that that's what everybody says, man. I'm just, I'm so scared of them switches. I'm scared. I don't even want to look at them. But I, honestly, your 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 words definitely um, go deep with me. And, and I appreciate it. How did you, what, what was your approach to your daughters around the topic of, drugs and alcohol were you the cool mom hey come party here or was it i better not catch you no so uh well this leads us right into my uh career today um it being in the space of addiction uh because i was married to an addict their dad was an addict and um so it was very important for me from a, a, their very early ages to help them understand that you know addiction can be hereditary, you know, that you are predisposed to having an addiction issue. And uh, I was always very transparent about it. Um, I uh, exposed them to Alatot and Alatine when they were young, which is a 12-step program for the family members and kids of addicts and alcoholics so that they had a place where they could go and not feel alone. They were amongst a group of their peers going through the same thing. So giving them those resources was really important to me. I was also the mom because I don't have addiction issues. Um, and I was divorced by the time my kids were, uh, they were seven and nine. So by the time they were experimenting with alcohol and drugs in high school, um, I was the mom that never said, don't do it. You know, you'll get in trouble. It's always like, just, you know, if you do it, be safe, you know, don't drive. You know, I'm not naive enough. And I hope there's no parent naive enough to think that their kids aren't going to try and experiment with that stuff. There are a select few that don't, but most of them do. You have yeah. to be transparent and open to it. And I was the one that said, if you're going to do it, do it here. We're taking keys. You know, I, I just want to be as safe as possible because I know they're going to do it. I just want them to be safe while they're doing it. And to this day, like I said, my kids are 24 and 26. Uh, knock on wood, we don't have any issues with addiction. Uh, they went off to college. It wasn't like they were experimenting for the first time and going woo woo crazy and getting themselves in trouble um, like a lot of their friends did. Um, so, you know, it worked out in the way it worked. It, I'm not saying that's the answer for everybody to do it that way. Um, I will tell you that if I was having that conversation with my kids today, it would be an entirely different conversation than it was when my kids were in high school because of the fentanyl that's on the street. You can't just go out experimenting with drugs now like kids when we, I was a kid and my kids were kids you could do. It's, it's, a, it's Russian roulette. It's a, it can be a dead sentence buying something off the street these days. So... Yeah, that 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 is a great point too. Stuff's a lot stronger. It seems like people are a lot shittier. They'll give yeah. you stuff that's spiked. Um, it's 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 really disgusting. So let's just say hypothetically, your daughter or daughters, one of them, because I think they're different ages. Uh, fifth, they're fifteen years old, and they come up to you and they say, "Hey, mom, you know, 
I think I want to try to drink some alcohol. Um, I seen Johnny was drinking some. He was playing video games, drinking alcohol. I want to try it. What What do you do? Uh, I say, let's go. What do you want to try? I'll make you a drink. <laughs> You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no really. We're- I did that. Like I took my kids, uh, you know, keep in mind I was a single mom, but one of our things was to go skiing every year. And I took them out to Colorado every year and we'd go with these other families and, you know, that we would have drinks in the house and I would say, do you want to taste it? You know, I never made it taboo. I I mean, think of it over in Europe where the kids are eight years old, 10 years old, they're exposed to it. They don't have the laws and the ways of uh, socializing with alcohol that we do. Um, you know, so I'm not saying I took my ideas from Europe. I'm just saying, you know, not in every country do they treat alcohol the same way we do here, where it's so taboo for kids. You don't give it to kids. You have to be 21. I just, I just don't think that that's a viable option to wait till they're 21 and, t- and forbid it until they're 21. So by not making it taboo, by making it open, hey, yep, there's drinks right here. If you want to taste one, if you want to have one. Um, yeah. And I think because of that, they never had the sense of, you know, oh, I got to do this behind mom's back. I got to go get drunk. I want to try this out. You know, it just never became like that. Yeah, that's a good point too. The taboo definitely adds to it 100%, especially if you have kind of rebellious kids, you know, kids love rebellious people love to do stuff you tell them not to do. And also something that I've never got is, by the way, Alcohol tastes like ass. So why not? Like the first time I sipped a beer or something like that, I was like, oh my, what in the world? Why would anybody drink this stuff? This is terrible. So, you know, so if if you just like whenever I was a kid, if I were to drink like pear juice, I would think, oh gosh, I'm never drinking pear juice again. But there's this magical substance that's in the top shelf that I'm not supposed to touch. And so now I kind of want to touch it and, oh, it tastes bad and that's nasty. But hmm, maybe there's something about it. So, yeah, that's a that's a really good approach. What what would you do if that day you fix your kid a drink? Here's a beer, whatever. Then a week later, they're like, okay, I want some more. A couple days later, I want some more. Hey, can I have a whole bottle? What what what's your steps then? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good one. I didn't have to deal with that, fortunately. Um, but you know, there's a time and a place for everything, right? We didn't have dessert every night in my house. You know, desserts yeah. are for special occasions. So I think I would treat alcohol the same way. Like, no, this isn't something we do on a daily basis. You see, we go out with friends, and I'm in someone's house, and there's a party going on. That's why we're having a drink. It's not something we're doing on a regular basis. Now, in high school, kids are going to go out on the weekends, and they're going to drink and whatnot, and they're going to experiment with that kind of stuff. But it's just always being transparent, always communicating about it, always telling your expectations. Not that your kids are always going to follow through with what your expectations are, but then there has to be consequences if those expectations aren't being met, and they're getting out of hand with it. So... Um, every situation is different. What, what about the friends of, so let's say your kid has a buddy, you know, Johnny comes over and now Johnny wants to try it. Do you give Johnny a drink? These are real gray areas. Yeah, they are really gray areas. I would not, I would not give Johnny a drink. I would, I mean, I have, um, done that before with my kids' friends, but I knew all the parents. I knew how the parents felt about it, you know, but you know, I had my kids trained that they didn't even watch R-rated movies before they were, you know, able to watch R-rated movies. And they would call me from someone's house and say, hey, so-and-so's going to watch this movie. Can I watch it? You know, so um, I would hope Johnny's parents 
tell him the same thing. Hey, if you want to do something that's not a rule, that's a rule in our house, you're not supposed to just call me, you know, let me know what's going on. I'll let you know if it's cool or not, but I wouldn't do it without a parent's permission. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the right answer too. Um, but them kids would definitely find the quote unquote cool parent and go party like crazy at that parent's house. But then as a parent, you could be liable. Oh, if that kid kills himself on the way home. You know, cops will come to your door. Yeah. That's why they didn't leave my house if they were coming over to have any kind of a little get together party with the kids. They stayed the night. Boys and girls. I didn't care how old. Yeah. You know, yeah. like a lot of people are like, oh, you can't have boys spend the night at your daughter's houses, you know. They're past that age. It's like, oh, they're not going anywhere. They're going to be in my house. So, I know. I, I agree with that. I, I think that's definitely the right approach. So do you think, is a person born an addict? Is that possible? So studies say that uh, it's 50-50. It's 50% hereditary. It's 50% environmental. So hmm. that's what I go with. Okay. Yeah. So you can be born maybe with a higher chance to be an addict than a different person, right? Yes. I wonder, so if I'm, let's say, okay, so it's 50-50. Let's say that I am born with the addict gene. Will maybe, do you think that like addictive traits will pop up in like other areas of your life, such as maybe I'm addicted to games or something like that? Or is it, Hey, you have this trait, so it only kind of exists if you're in the drug and alcohol world. It can definitely crop up anywhere. You know, anybody that, you know, needs something to make them feel good, they can rely on anything. Like you said, I mean, it could be gaming. It could be, you know, binging on Netflix. It could be, you know, work or working out. Um, it's just a tendency of a personality that just gets addicted to anything that makes them feel good kind of thing. So you try to direct them, obviously, in not destructive behaviors, but constructive yeah. behaviors um, that are beneficial rather than a liability. Yeah. Are, are there any like common maybe traits or triggers for addicts? So just speaking for myself personally, um, I've struggled with, I, I guess what you would call addiction. Thank goodness I wasn't addicted to meth or anything crazy like that. My mother actually overdosed on drugs. She was an addict my entire life. Uh, my father was addicted to pills. So like, I'm completely fucked. Okay. <laughs> I don't stand a chance. In a month, I'm going to be on the street corner. Dana, I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you up, Dana. Please help me. I'll be but, there. Please, please <laughs> do. Um, but my trigger that I've just recently learned, okay, I'm 32 years old. I've, I've been doing drugs and alcohol since I was 15. Um, or 14 cigarettes, everything. Um, my trigger is I cannot be bored. I, I, I can't, I can't, if I get bored, I do drugs, period. That's just it. Is it like that for other addicts or is it, or are there like other things that do it? Maybe such as, um, having a bad day or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all over the board. I mean, what's a trigger for you might not be a trigger for someone else. Somebody else might be, you know, a family member. It might be a, a place they drive by. It could be a work environment or a certain set of friends or a certain bar. Who knows? It's the gamut of triggers. I do have a question for you though. Are you clean and sober now or do you just keep it under control yeah. or what, what's your dealio? Yeah. So I'm, 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 it's under control. Um, I don't, 
Uh, I'll I will drink occasionally, like maybe once a month. Um, but that is it. I actually went. I got to a point where I went go see uh, an addiction counselor or like an addiction therapist, and um, it was it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. I, I, he didn't help me at all. I, th- I think he sucked, um, in my opinion. I think a lot um, of them do. Yeah, he was. It was it was really bad. It, so I only went three sessions, and they're very freaking expensive, like two hundred bucks an hour. Ridiculous. By the way, because a real addict like who's on the streets can't afford half of that. So like the first visit I go to this guy and essentially the entire hour, he says the same thing. Hey, we're going to get through this together. That's all he says. We're going to get through this together. I'm going to work with you together. And I walk out of there feeling very unfulfilled. (laughs) So I'm like, my I, I literally walked into the session with him and I had one question. Am I an addict? That's all I wanted to know. Cause I was like, I just couldn't stop. I just, I get on binges. I just get on binges and for like four months, it's just bad. And he, he didn't answer it. And so the second session we went and he was like, I went in with the same question. He essentially just asked a bunch of background questions. Hey, what's your dad do? What's, what do you do? Where do you live? How long you been doing this substance, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the whole hour, that's all it is. I'm like, okay. And he's writing. And then the third session, I go, I come in with the same question. Am I an addict? And he continues to ask background questions on me. And a lot of the questions he asked me the last week. Uh-huh. And he, I'm like, I'm like, bro, you're wasting my time. And listen, he, he had some, I, I would think, good advice. He recommended that... Um, that I get out the house, that I not be so isolated. I work from home, um, which is great advice, by the way. He recommended I go to AA meetings, even um, which is is really great advice. And he recommended um, some some other things that I thought were really good, but it just felt like he was wasting my time, and so I stopped seeing him. Um, yeah, I don't blame you. It, it I, and, and I it was too. It, it it was just so expensive, and I I. I honestly felt like he was milking me for money. That That's how I felt. I'm probably wrong. That's how it feels to me. If he's just tell, sending you other places, like, yeah, go to 12-step meetings, you know, well, what are you going to do for me? You know, I yeah. want answers right now in this room, something I can take with me and use out in my real life. I need tools. But I have a question for you. Why was it so important for you to know if you were an addict? What was that about? Because of your parents? Well, no, not not that. It's like, because I... I didn't have what I would call like typical addict person like traits. What I do since I've, you know, for the past 10 plus years is I go on a good run for like six months. I am working out. I'm eating healthy. I'm kicking ass at work. I'm doing everything. I mean, I'm great. I'm good to my wife. I'm good to my dogs, everything. And then for like four months, I just binge everything. Uh, from just like weed and alcohol to food, to porn, to social media, anything. And for those four months, it is just, I am just a piece of shit. I'm mean to everybody. I'm stupid at work because the brain fog and this would happen. I would, I would literally put on 30 pounds and then lose 30 pounds and then put on because, and I was just like, all or nothing. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't 
Now, I don't think I'm an addict because I, you know, once I kick it, I'm usually pretty good. So I'm like, am I an addict? Am I one of those people who has to be sober all the time? Or what am I? What, what, what the fuck's going on with me? Is this normal? And I just, I could never get that answer. Um, so that, that's what made me go see him because I slid down so far and I was just at a real low in my life. Um, my wife was very concerned about me. And so I decided to do something different and go see this guy. Um, but um, he, I don't think he helped that much, um, to be honest. Yeah, it doesn't when, sound when, like it. When, once I kick it, then I'm good. Like right now I'm good, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I don't even really crave any substance or anything like that. I want to be better. I wake up every day. I want to be better. Um, but it just takes like one slip up, like one little, like last time um, I was, I, I got a new barbecue pit. I was like, oh boy, I'm so, mm, got a new barbecue pit. Yeah, I'm about to, I'm about to cook some meat. I'm the meat man. I say, you know what? I'm going to celebrate this. I'm going to go get me a big old fat blunt. And I'm going to smoke that bitch. And uh, <laughs> it was glorious, <laughs> but <laughs> but I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And I just kept buying all kind of weed, kept drinking, all kind of food. And that went into a four-month bender. Just something as innocent as I'm celebrating getting my barbecue pit. That's it. That's it. I just I smoked the blunt. It was great. And that turned into four months of hell. And um, I just stopped the bender like two months ago. Oh, wow. So, and yeah. how long does it typically last when you're off of the bender and back on the wagon? Usually four to five months. And so, then it's, usu- it's so, usually a three-month bender and then a four to five-month sober type thing. Wow. See, yeah. <laughs> I want to be your coach. <laughs> but we're not here to have a coaching session. No, um, coach. Coach me up, Doc. What what you got for me? What what tips would you have for me? Don't and don't tell me what I. Here's what I don't want to hear. Okay, and I may need to hear it, so I don't know. But uh, <laughs> here's 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 what I don't want to hear. Chris, listen. You have to be sober. You're never ever going to be able to drink or smoke or do anything again. You're never, you know, any of these substances. You just can't go around. You're one of those people. Um, I may need to hear that. But that you, task just seems so insurmountable. Well, you you may be one of those people. I don't know that you're one of those people. I certainly wouldn't say that to you at this point. I don't know you well enough or your history well enough. Um, I will say that there's a reason in AA that they say one day at a time because the rest yeah. of your life is insurmountable, just like you said. So, um, but, you know, every time you slip, uh, it's, it's a learning lesson, right? And that's what you have to pay attention to. Relapse is a part of a recovery journey and a recovery journey is different for everybody. For some people, it is complete abstinence. For some people, it's harm reduction. Hey, I can't shoot heroin, but I can smoke weed and it doesn't make me go off the rails. So, you know, there's all kinds of definitions of success in recovery. So it's what works for you. Personally, I think taking you out for four months on a binge where everything goes to shit in a handbasket, I don't think that's so healthy, right? So, Yeah. And especially because it's not like you're putting a year together and then you go off for a couple of months. It's like you're four months on, four months off, four months on. So it really is counterproductive to the good time you have because you're going so low in those other four months. So um, that's what I would work on with you is like, you know, why can't you have a joint and celebrate your barbecue pit 
without going off the deep end for four months. Like, how do we get you back on track faster? You know, and um, mm. if that's your goal, to be able to have, you know, a couple beers with buddies or a joint out of the fire pit, you know, if that's your goal, that's what we'd work on, getting you to that goal without losing four months out of your life and making everybody in the process crazy, right? Because yeah. it doesn't just affect you, it affects the dogs, mostly your wife. <laughs> yes, definitely. All, all of them, the coworkers. Yeah, and you don't want to be that person. I don't know anybody in active addiction that's not miserable and wants to be where they're at. You know, yeah. there's pain. There's something there that has to be uncovered. And uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of getting to the roots of the triggers and why the triggers cause you to do it. And why does it go on for four months? Why can't you snap out of it magically? So there's just a lot of work to be done figuring all that stuff out. And that's what we do for clients. And as a, you know, recovery coach, um, I'm also a family addiction coach. So, um, I work with like the wives, right. And the other family mm-hmm. members so that they can maintain their peace and well being while their addict person is, I shouldn't say addict person. I don't like calling anybody an addict. You might have an addiction. You're just a person that has a bad habit. Right. Um, yeah. but help them to keep their well-being, peace of mind while active addiction is going on. And I'm an expert at that because I lived it <laughs> and I raised two daughters in it. Oh, that's such a good point. And it, it really is the people that are not talked about in addiction is the family members who are completely innocent. And fuck, man, just my wife, just thinking about my wife and some of the and and like I said, I'm not addicted to meth or anything like that. Thank goodness I've stayed away from that bull crap. But these family members get the shit kicked out of them. They do by, because when you're by in, maniac, yeah. Because when you're in active mode with whatever it is you're using, it, you're on a one way track, right? And there's no peripheral vision, you know. And all you're thinking about is that next high, that next fix. And it's a very selfish disease. And it doesn't give a shit about anybody else. And so the brain takes over. And it does, the chemistry changes in the brain when you're using substances. And those paths get rewired. And they also get rewired back when you're not on a binge, which is why you can maintain it. But as soon as you ingest something, and it gets that uh, memory recall. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember what that was like. That was fun. I want to do that again. And then it just goes off the deep end. Those brain waves change again. Those neurotransmitters change. And it's on a one-way track to get high. It doesn't care about anybody else. It just takes everybody hostage along the way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad. And something I don't think we talk about enough. Um, what is there any tips or any type of suggestions you would give to a person like me, and by the way, probably thousands of other people out there who after maybe you have a couple beers or smoke a little bit or do something like that to the next day to be sober. Cause it's always the day after I always tell my wife, it's like, if we, if I have two days in a row, it might as well be two months because it's gone. It's gone. So how, how do I prevent myself from going back to that substance on the second day? well, here's what you don't want to hear. You may be one of those people that can't control that. And in that case, the idea is to become happier and healthier and enjoy your life so much that the thought of going back to that, that second day, which turns into two months and four months, you just don't even want to tempt it. You don't even want to tempt fate. You don't want to go there. Like life's too good. 
I'm having too much fun. Uh, my wife's happy. You know, why would I want to take that chance? Right? It's a revolving yeah. door. And one of those times that you're not going to get back in because the wife's going to have enough or your body's going to say, I quit and die on you or whatever. So we always say, if you're one of those people that goes out and continually relapses, who knows when that revolving door is going to shut in your face. So I know you don't want to hear that, but that might, that might be the, the case. You know, maybe you can't yeah. handle just having one joint. Yeah, it may be the case. And it's, it's, it's sad. I think it's not sad. Uh, it's not sad. It's not sad to have be sober in life. <laughs> it's getting more and more popular it, all the time. <laughs> you're, you're right. Actually, it, a lot, <laughs> a lot more people are sober. In fact, pretty much every comedian you hear now, either they are raging alcoholic or completely sober. <laughs> right. It's crazy. They're either sober um, or need to be sober. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. Um, but I mean, there's sober I, bars. You know, there's everywhere you go. There's mocktails. There's sober bars. There What's are, that? It's bars that don't serve alcohol. Holy shit! Yeah, dry bars. Yeah. So, what, what do they serve? Mocktails. Well, you you know, you probably don't know this, but if you like rum, there's non-alcoholic rum. If you like wine, there's non-alcoholic wine. If you like tequila, there's non-alcoholic tequila. So Holy they shit. serve spirits that have zero. They're zero proof. Wow. So, yeah, the world is getting more turned on. I heard someone say, wouldn't it be amazing, and not to me because I'm, uh, I'm not recovering in that sense, uh, but if asking someone if they want to drink was as taboo as asking someone if they wanted a cigarette. Yeah. Like, could you imagine that day? I can't imagine that day. But anyway, um, yeah, it's not a bad thing to choose to not go to the lengths that you go to when you're not sober. And those lengths suck. And to say, I'm done, I don't want to go through that anymore, it's kind of okay. And it's not really a sad thing. It's an empowering thing. I think it's sad. Well, for me specifically, I, I and here we go. We're, we're having a whole therapy session. Here we go. Let me get the tissue. <laughs> <laughs> but I, for me personally, it's sad um, because I think, uh, and, and a lot of the things that even the counselor was trying to say whenever I was going to him, a lot of it was like tied to self-worth. And I have extremely low self-worth. So whenever you say, do it for you, Chris, do it, you know, because you want to be better. Like, I really don't give a shit about me at all. So like that does not ring, um, ring true uh, that, that, you know, you might as well say, do it for, you know, the snail outside or something like that. You don't give a shit about that snail. Um, but it's, I, it's so I, interesting. You talk about this because I'm also an interventionist. And a lot of times I'll be doing an intervention where the person oh doesn't care if they live or die, right? They're like, yeah. I have nothing to live for. So why would, you know, when you're doing an intervention, the goal is to get them to go with you to treatment, right? We have a bed lined up that day. It's like, hey, we can get on a plane. We can go. It's all ready for you. And they're like, why would I do that? I don't want to live anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't know an addict or alcoholic that has good self-esteem and good self-worth. Whoa. Why, why do you think that is? Well, why are they drinking? It's not because they're so in love with themselves that they love what, how, you, know, you, you know what I mean? You don't ingest poison in one way or another if you have high self-esteem and self-worth. So, um, and it's all, I, I won't say all, but everybody I've come across, it all has to do with trauma and past experiences, conditioning, um, people telling them 
whatever it is that makes them feel worthless. Trauma can come in a million different forms. You know, we always think of uh, war or divorce or sexual assault or physical, you know, th that's not that's not the only way it's trauma can occur. You know, trauma can be a third grade teacher shaming you in front of the class. And you don't even yeah. remember it, but it was so traumatic, you know. Um, so using becomes a maladaptive coping skills for unwanted thoughts and feelings. And when you're dealing with somebody that's using that mechanism to um, numb out their pain, to get rid of whatever it is they don't want to feel or think, uh, there's something under that you got to uncover, you know, and when you can work through those things, that's when somebody gets happy enough with themselves, likes themselves enough that they say, yeah, I don't want to ingest, I don't want to go through that anymore. I don't want to put my wife through that anymore. So you do have to get to a point where you care enough about the people around you that you care about yourself, that you want to work on yourself. It's just evolving as a person. It's personal development. It's personal growth. And Lord knows we all need to do that for a lifetime. <laughs> Have you ever seen somebody actually go from um, kind of being an addict, not caring about themselves, to having legitimate good self-esteem? Absolutely, hundred percent. And how 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 do you do that? Well, there's always something you can grip onto, right? There's something in everybody's life that they're good at that they excelled at. I mean, even if it was you know when they were in junior high playing football or schooling that they've done or a degree that they have. So you just really hone in on something they're good at. And that's where you start, something that makes them feel good, something that make them made them uh, feel good back then. And because addicts give up everything for that one thing, right? Whatever hobbies they had, whatever family they had, whatever work they had, I mean, they're just kind of giving up everything to, you know, be on that one way track of their drug or of choice. Right. And when they start to give that up, they can get everything back. So you got to remind them what they're good at, what they excelled at, what people see in them that other people like. Why do you, why, what do your friends see? What do your, you know, you just start there. There's always something. There's some talent. There's something yeah. they're good at, something they like to do, and get back to those basics. Yeah, there, there's always something or there should be for everybody has done something in their life that made them feel special. Um, whether maybe you're a young kid and you started singing and everybody stopped and looked at you and said, wow, man, what a voice. And in that moment, you felt more special than anybody in the world. And that is a brilliant answer that you just gave because I've never thought about that. And it's so true. If you just go back to that special thing, um, that one thing that makes you unique and special and let's do that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the other thing too, is finding a purpose, you know, when you don't have a purpose in life, it can really make you want to throw your life away. Right. Yeah. And so once you can, um, you know, the day you're born is important, but more important is the day you find out why you're here. And when mm -hmm. you can, you know, you said you love your job, you have a lot of fun, right. Successful yeah. at it. Right. Yeah. So, Everybody needs that in their life. And when you don't have something to hold on to that gives you purpose, that makes you feel purposeful, that is serving a greater purpose than just yourself, because that's all drugs are doing is serving you. So once you can get outside yourself and figure out what it is that serves other people, what you can do to be um, present in your own life and be a gift to others, it makes a big difference in your self-esteem and self-worth. Yeah, it's beautifully put. Uh, whenever you do these interventions, 
first of all, could you kind of tell me what's this, what's the standard process for intervention? Is it like we see on TV with the weird room and the candles or <laughs> what, what, what does the intervention look like? Well, there are several models of interventions. Um, the kind you see on TV is called the Johnson model. That's what I do, um, where the family or loved ones, friends of the um, person with an addiction come together, hire the interventionist uh, to come in and talk to the person in hopes to get them to want to change their behaviors and get to treatment. And so it's done in a very loving and caring way. Um, I, I'm not going to say that the uh, one you're intervening on doesn't feel a little ambushed. Uh, they can feel a little betrayed. Uh, they can feel a little attacked. But I, as an interventionist, we're really good at calming that and squashing that because it really does come from a place of love and compassion towards them. And, um, and then we're there just to remind them of the things I just talked about, of all the potential they had. But the problem with potential is anytime you put it up next to addiction, addiction is going to kick potential's ass 10 out of 10 times. So in order to get your potential back, we needed to get rid of the addiction. And the only way we're going to get rid of the addiction is to take you out of your environment and mm. where you can focus on you and take the time you need to heal. And that's what it's all about. And then, uh, you know, with the family and friends and myself, we encourage them to make a decision to get the help they need. And then hopefully you're getting on a plane and flying with them somewhere across the country because we don't, we try not to keep them in the same state they're in. Um, try to really remove them so it's not so easy just to get an Uber and drive to your drug dealer's house, you know. So really remove them from the environment. Um, and they go and they, you know, do the course of treatment that's recommended for them. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Whenever, whenever I'm down bad, people tend to stay away from me and I completely get it. <laughs> but deep down, there's this weird part of me where I'm like, I wish somebody cared enough to do an intervention. It's so weird. I'm like, nobody gives a shit and I don't give a shit. So man, fuck all y'all. Fuck all y'all. And that's how I feel every single day. It's like, fuck y'all. And I look at my wife who I know loves me to death and I love her. And I'm just like, man, you don't even care at all. Like, I just, I wish you would like fucking burn. I want you to burn. And, but there's this weird part where I'm like, I wish they cared enough to like take matters out of my own hands because even at my lowest lows, I'm like, somebody actually needs to do this because I can't. You know, I'm so glad you say that, Chris, because I always say every addict is begging for help. They just don't know how to ask for it. And when you're in that state, you are isolated because you've pushed everybody away and everybody's scared and everybody, nobody knows what to say. And everybody's tiptoeing around the elephant in the room mm -hmm. and giving you your space. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right what you say. And I'm so glad to hear you say it because I've always said that, but you're somebody that's been in that and you're saying it. So it makes me know it's true. They're all begging for help. They just don't know how to ask. And, um, and that, you know, when families intervene, unfortunately, it's the last thing they think to do. It's not the first thing they think to do. They've tried everything else. They've exhausted all of their means to try to get their loved one help. And so they revert to, um, we need somebody professional. 
I wish it was the first thing they thought of because people can't handle addiction. You know, you're not trained for it. People aren't around you aren't trained for it. That's why they go away. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to say. Mm. And they really can't say anything. There's no credibility there. Uh, you know, a lot of times the relationships have been walked all over. Boundaries have been broken. They don't believe anything you say. You know, there's just too much history. So bringing in a professional in those situations makes all the difference in the world. You know, as a third neutral party, um, that there's not those uh, built up resentments. There's not that heated triggering that goes on between family members. Yeah. It just makes all the difference in the world to get the loved one to say, wow, my family cares enough that they're willing to do this for me. And this person knows how to, how to do it and what I need. And a lot of the times they listen. Yeah, I think so. Now, now I'll say that, but if, if I walked into intervention, <laughs> I would literally want to fist fight everybody. And yeah. Take me to jail because that's how I'm going to have. I'm a complicated person. Listen, I want you to love. I want you to come try to hug me, but I want to push you away at the same time. This is why I'm impossible. This is why I'm I'm destined for bad things. Um, do, does that ever happen? Like you have an intervention and someone's like, oh, fuck, no. Like, listen, <laughs> I got my a life. knife or or whatever and it's going down. Yeah, my, my last intervention actually was exactly that. She was 18. In fact, she turned 18 the day before the intervention, and wow. she was just pissed. She wanted to party with her friends. It was a weekend. Her birthday was on a Friday. This was Saturday. She had plans all weekend to party with her friends. Um, she, I mean, the first thing she said, oh, hell no, you're not doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she walked right up to her room and locked the door. And, um, you know, Here's the thing about doing an intervention too. If they're not ready, you know, if they haven't had enough negative consequences, if their life hasn't gotten shitty enough, it's very likely that they're going to go, I'm not done yet, you know, and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Now, I am still working with that family. Um, she did end up going to jail because um, she did come out of her room. She left the house and she assaulted her brother, her twin brother. Um, on her way out sort of thing. So we had to call the police who came and uh, we met with the bond at the bond call the next morning. Um, and she was told by the judge, if she went to treatment, the judge would let her out of jail. And she said, no, wow. she wasn't going to treatment. So she stayed in jail. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just shit. like you just said, take me to jail. I'm not going, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, that's exactly oh, yeah. what she said. So, um, yeah. So anyway, she's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously a long story, but, um, yeah, she's, uh, I'm still working with the family and we're still keeping boundaries in place and, um, there's still hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. Whenever I'm kind of in a rut, what I really look for and I cannot find it is essentially, I want a place that's kind of like a military boot camp, but maybe not as physically strenuous. I want a place where, I, there's no drugs or alcohol. The food is healthy. Uh, maybe there's some yoga type shit and um, there's some type of structure. I think that that's what I really, whenever I'm at a place where I'm like, hey, I want to help myself. What I really want to, I just want some structure. I don't want a full rehab or whatever. That's what I, and I can't find it. So it does that exist? And what is rehab like? Yeah, so um, I think that a lot of people have that stigma about rehab, that it's like a boot camp, it's like therapy, it's like they're going to call me out, they're going to sit me in groups, I'm going to be in the hot seat, right? So, And I think it, it has evolved because it was more like that. But um, 
So we have a network of treatment centers all across the country we work with. We only work at treatment centers that we know have a great success rate. We know they're doing great things. They have multiple modalities. It's not just like 12 step and that's it. That's your, you know, cause like I said, recovery is different for everybody. So the places we use are exactly what you said. They offer massage, they offer yoga, they offer art therapy, they offer equine therapy with horses. They have outings where they go kayaking and hiking. Um, it's very structured. They have groups and they have individual therapies. Um, and they all have a team of people working on their behalf because it has to be individualized because everybody's going through something different, right? Even though it's kind of all the same, everybody's got a different story and their story has to be treated by their team. So um, it's a combination of all those things. It's somatic experiencing, it's um, working on their PTSD, it's uh, EMDR, it's you know just a, a lot of different modalities to get them through and get them on the other side to heal. What about psychedelics? Have because this is kind of new. People are saying that hey, you could do some some type of psychedelics and then have a lot of healing to your addiction um, in a short amount of time. Have you looked into this, or do you know anything about it? Yeah, I do. I know a lot of people have, that have done that, and, and actually, um, it's gotten more popular in the states where you just have to go to Peru or Brazil with a shaman to um, have these experiences. Um, I've never done it. I've heard it's life changing. I've heard it's enlightening. I've heard it's amazing. I hear you throw up and you get sick and you're watching everybody around you throw up and get sick and trip and all this kind of crazy stuff. But I don't know anybody that didn't like it and say that they're glad they did it and that it was life changing. Um, and they're using psychedelics to, um, work on cures for addiction. So, you know, I don't have an opinion about it. I'm all for whatever works for the person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whatever gets you on track, gets your life back. I, I'm open to it. And everybody's path is different. So who am I to say one thing won't work for somebody? Why do you think so many famous people are, are addicts? It seems like uh, all, so every other famous person is an addict, right? Yeah. Well, I think, well, I think that's a really loaded question. Um, First of all, they have money. They have access to it. They're around people that do it. Um, there are certain lifestyles that go along with certain sports or certain, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, lifestyles as rock stars or whatever. So, um, so the exposure to it, the pressure, you know, like I said, using drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. When you're under a lot of pressure, when people expect a lot of you, you know, you've got to find a way to cope. I mean, that we were talking about Elvis earlier, you know, he, he couldn't cope with it. Um, I heard a conversation one time, um, Wayne Newton, who was in Vegas performing at the same time as Elvis, um, he, Elvis had a conversation with Wayne Newton. I heard Wayne Newton say this and Elvis said to Wayne Newton, you know, how, how the, all this pressure and then all the drugs we take because of the pressure and then there's no sleep and then we need to take pills to sleep. How do you cope with all of it? And he goes, I don't do drugs. And Elvis mm. was just shocked that he cope somehow with this lifestyle without the drugs you know you got to get up to be on stage and then i got to get down to go to sleep and popping pills you know so um it's it's all maladaptive forms of coping <clears throat> yeah so do you think that essentially anybody can become an addict e even if you don't have the propensity to if you're put in a situation like these rock stars where they take the drugs to cope well, the other thing I want to say, I said that was a loaded question. And here's the other part about that. Anybody that's at the top of their game, right? So you're talking about elite people, whether they're in sports or in entertainment, in the movies and 
on stage perform, whatever it is, it's a very elite group, right? It takes a mm-hmm. certain kind of personality to get you there, to have that drive, to work that hard. A lot of times that's a coping skill, right? They're trying to overcompensate for something they're lacking, they're missing. And that's why they become so extreme in whatever it is that they're doing, right? That's a propensity right there that they're, they're coping with something and drugs and alcohol could become a part of that coping, right? Because that's just yeah. creating more pressure and more elitistness. I don't know if that's a word. Um, I do believe anybody can become an addict, but I also believe that under all addiction, there's something else going on. Like I said, there's some kind of trauma, there's something happened, there's something that got stopped along the way where they didn't, they had to come up with a maladaptive coping skill because they didn't know how to handle the thoughts or feelings they had. Could have been in third grade, could have been, you know, as an adult, you know, where that trauma comes in. But from that point on, um, and they're, they're trying to numb out that feeling, that's mm-hmm. where drugs and alcohol co- come into play, right? So somebody, okay, so take, you know, the average college kid, right, yeah. who experiments with drugs or on the same path as someone that doesn't become an addict. The one that has, becomes an addict probably has an underlying issue that keeps them going in that direction. Someone that just smokes weed and they don't have underlying issues, they may just smoke weed. Somebody's got underlying issues that weed isn't going to numb enough over time. They're going to need something more and it leads to other things and other things and other things. So for me and my experience, that's the difference of how somebody becomes addicted to something and somebody doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's really interesting. So how do, I guess one, how does a person identify the underlying issue? And then two, how can you do something about it? Maybe without professional help, is it possible? Probably not. And, and I, I, I'm not going to say that. You know, people can work and do anything they want, right? I mean, I believe Henry Ford when he says, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. So if you think you can make it happen, you're going to make it happen. The problem is that the brain, because addiction changes so much physically um, to your body and to your brain, um, and it becomes a dependency, that's the problem. So there's some substances that are fatal if you just stop. You can die just stopping alcohol you know, depending upon the, the level of addiction. So, uh, and because of the brain is changed so much and it becomes dependent on it, it's sometimes physically impossible just to stop on your own. So the, is a trauma loop. Okay. You may have heard that before. No, so, no. okay. So a trauma loop, experience some trauma. You don't like the way it feels. You find a coping skill to numb it out, drugs or alcohol. Okay. Anytime you feel that trauma again, And let me just say something really quick. The brain does not know time, okay? So for instance, somebody that was in a war and comes back, okay, they have PTSD because every time they have a flashback or they think of it or they have a nightmare, the brain thinks that's happening in real time. The brain doesn't know that's in the past. You can't like talk your brain out of thinking that this is not happening right now. The brain just thinks, okay, then they remember, oh, I have a drink, I have a smoke, it takes that away, I can go back to sleep, okay? It becomes a trauma loop. Every time the Trauma comes up, you remember how to get rid of it by some kind of maladaptive coping skill, and it becomes a loop in the brain. It's just like wiring a computer. It's just a loop that just happens, right? So the brain actually has to be rewired, and the brain can be rewired. But until you can rewire the brain, 
it's really hard to just self-will it. Hmm. So th- this trauma, and, and I understand what you're saying with, so let's just take a, a hypothetical. In fifth grade, for example, somebody pulled down my pants and the whole class seen my pecker. <laughs> right. Traumatizing. <laughs> Traumatizing. <laughs> Probably so. I don't know why. I don't know why that's the example. Um, that didn't really happen to me, by the way. But, <laughs> but let's just say this happened super traumatizing. But whenever I'm maybe experimenting with drugs for the first time at, let's say, you know, in the eighth grade, I'm not thinking like, oh, man, I remember that time she pulled down my pants. But maybe I just have an urge to do this thing. So how do how do you know that that urge is from trauma and not just like built in? Okay, so that's a really great question. And um, I'm going to take it one step back farther back is, uh, have you ever heard of implicit memory? No. So implicit memory are memories you don't even remember. Okay. And they can happen as early as in the womb. Okay. Cause you you know how they say like, you don't remember things before age four or five or something like that. You can't recall the memory, but you still have the memory. There's a great book called the body keeps the score. And, um, and it's all about how trauma affects the body. So even though when you're in high school and you try that drug, you're not remembering that time but the drug makes you feel something you hadn't felt before and it feels better than going it alone so to speak you know or not you know having something and that's how it can manifest so so all and that's why it's so important to have a counselor or a therapist that can help you uncover because a lot of times you don't even remember i mean you i'm sure you've heard stories about you know people that don't remember they were raped by their dad and then all of a sudden something happens and they remember, right? They're using drugs and alcohol. They don't even know why. So it's all interconnected, but you're not necessarily using because you're having that memory at the time. Mm. So you think that there's just kind of this buildup of maybe let's call it trauma or hurt that the brain is maybe implicitly trying to do something about or get rid of and then you have that drink, let's just say, and the brain is like, oh boy, this is exactly what I was looking for because all that shit's gone. So, hey, keep doing that. Keep drinking that. Is that how it is? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. If I were a brain and I could talk, I would think that's how. So <laughs> I think that's kind of what, what the brain would say. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the people I really feel bad for is the people who struggle with addiction to food. Um, cause you can't, you can't stop eating is, do you think that that line of addiction is similar to one of hardcore drugs? Is it the well, same thing? It's actually called a process addiction. So process addictions are behaviors that are unhealthy, like overeating, but like gaming, um, porn, mm-hmm. sex. Okay. So those are process gambling. Those are process addictions where you're not ingesting something of a substance. So there is a name for for that. Um, I will tell you that the chemistry in the brain is all the same. It doesn't mm. matter if you're ingesting it or doing it, whether it's food, whether it's porn, the chemicals in the brain don't change. So it doesn't matter what the addiction is. It's all affecting the person in the same way. Yeah. 
So it, it's all kind of the same, but you're saying they, they just have a different label for it, a process addiction versus what, a substance addiction? Yeah, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, process addiction. Those would be the three categories that it's kind of buckets it falls into. What, what's the difference between an undisciplined person and an, a, an addict? So let's just say that I'm undisciplined, so I have a drink every night. Or let's say I'm an addict, so I have a drink every night. Is How do you tell the difference between the two? Well, I think addiction, in my opinion, is something that's causing you negative consequences. And everybody around you is telling you it's a problem. Yeah. Right? So if you're having a drink every night after work because it's just your undisciplined way of doing things, but it's not causing you problems. Your wife isn't yelling at you. You're not 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 waking up for work the next day or calling in sick. You know, you're not, you know, getting DWIs, you know, that, you know, there's a fine, it's a, I, I actually write a blog for psychology today called a fine line because it's such a fine line, right? Between all yeah. of those things, it really is. So, um, undisciplined doesn't get you in the trouble that addiction can, can get you into. Yeah, I guess you're right. I get being undisciplined though could get you into trouble hmm, in other ways. I guess it is a fine line. I guess uh, the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of coming to that conclusion where it is a fine line. Undisciplined can get you into a lot of trouble with work and stuff like that, but addiction can do the same. Um, yeah, an undisciplined person to me kind of has some control over what they're doing where when okay. an addiction takes over they have the person has no control the addiction yeah. takes over the d- addiction hijacks you and you are now like i keep saying you're just on a one-way track to get high or get laid or you know get drunk or whatever it might be um, an undisciplined person can put it aside to get the things done that they need to get done and there's a functioning a- addicts too right we always talk about high functioning addicts um Again, it's a fine line. You know, what are the consequences? Are, are you feeling, are you losing a weekend because you got to, you know, nurse a hangover all weekend or you not getting stuff done around the house because you don't feel good because of the party the night before? I mean, these are all behaviors that you got to take a look at and decide, am I just an undisciplined person or is this a problem in my life? Yeah, and actually your answer is lines up with what, the addiction therapist guy said too. He said uh, pretty much exactly what you said. He said if it's if it's negatively impacting you, it's an addiction. Uh, period. Um, and I was like, damn. I guess that is a good answer. Uh, what what made you get into addiction? Because you're not an addict, are you? Or no, I'm not. Okay. Um, so I've lived on the other side. My, I, my father was an addict. My all my boyfriends were addicts. My ex-husband, although he was clean and sober when I met him, he had been through treatment. He relapsed during our marriage after knee surgery. On what was Oxy. that like? Him relapsing? Yeah. Um, well, it's... Uh, how long do we have? No. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will tell you from his standpoint, so he had been clean and sober for, oh gosh, I don't know, quite a while. I'd have to think about the timeline, but for years he had been clean and sober. And then he had this knee surgery, and he tells a story that he took one Oxycontin and, um, and called the doctor immediately after and says, Doc, you'll never believe what happened. I was going to the bathroom, and all the pills spilled down the toilet. And the nice. guy wrote him another prescription. 
So it was that instant for him, you know, as soon as he took that pill and got that high, he was, like he says, I was back in Studio 54 in New York having the time of my life and I just wanted more. And, and so that, that went on to be a three-year, four-year run, which turned to heroin and gambling and everything else. And he ended up in prison. Um, that was much after I divorced him um, because I saw the, you know, the train wreck in the future. And so I wanted to get off the train. So was it I, hard to divorce him? It was really hard to divorce him, absolutely. Um, and I still say to this day, if he hadn't relapsed, we'd probably still be together, you know. But mm. I just couldn't subject, you know. I grew up in a home where my dad was an addict, and my mom stayed with my dad till I was eighteen. I was the youngest because she wasn't going to break up the family. She was going to wait till I was eighteen. And I said wow. that was the stupidest thing she could have done. I mean, it just fucked me up for my whole life, you know. So when 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 I found myself caught in the same situation, I was like, I'm not doing that to my girls, you know. I'm not going to teach them that they have to put up with a man's bullshit and yes. put up with this behavior. I'm going to show them that I'm stronger than that. And as women, we don't have to do that. So it was very important for me, and because of my history, that I take my girls out of that situation and do what was best for them. What was his reaction when? you left him oh he was pissed yeah because he just didn't think i'd ever follow through you know because we had a really nice really nice lifestyle i mean we made millions and millions of dollars like we had a nice life and he and and uh he thought i'd just never give up the lifestyle that he could just keep getting away with whatever he wanted and i just decided that i didn't care about the lifestyle i didn't care if the grass wasn't greener on the other side i just didn't want to be in that grass anymore Holy so. shit. Damn, you a good woman. Lord have mercy. That would have made <laughs> I would have wanted you more after that. I would have honestly <laughs> because as a as a guy, as a man, we we have ego behind money big time. If we feel like you know we're we're making good money, it's like and, and I know it's wrong or, or it can be wrong. I don't know. To say, oh man, look at all this money I'm making. You should treat me special, you know, put up with my shit. And the minute you would have said, you know what? Fuck your shit. I'm gone. I would have said, okay, I'll get sober right now. That would have did it for me. That would have did it. I'm like, damn, this woman is good. You are a good <laughs> woman and you're strong as shit. And uh, congratulations on doing that. Um, that that's really impressive, man. You are you're you're a bad woman. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. I'll take it as a compliment. But no, he yeah, so in in the position he was in, nobody had ever said no to him you know, in his whole life. And it was really hard. Like you said on his ego that someone was saying no more to him. So, um, yeah, but you know, he eventually, like I said, he did go to prison and then he got out of prison. We wrote a book together called addiction rescue, the no BS guide to recovery. Cause I told him, you know, we can help people. We have a story. He did get clean and sober before he went to prison cause he didn't want to kick heroin in prison. So he had gone to treatment. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's what got us started on this path to helping other people. So we're actually business partners. Um, we get along great now that he's clean and sober. And, uh, you know, we raise, our, well, they're raised, but we still, um, you know, co-parent as much parenting as you do to 24 and 26-year-old. And he's got great relationships with them today. Um, obviously, he and I have repaired that relationship. And um, he's an, also an interventionist and a recovery coach. And he works it from the other side of addiction. He tends to work more with the um, person with the addiction. I tend to work with the families. Uh, we do interventions and we just create an environment for the whole family to find recovery and uh, get their lives back on track and be happy and healthy, save their well-being, you know. 
Do y'all still date? Do y'all go on dates every once in a while, or he is and that I? too private? Yeah, no, we yeah, don't yeah. even live in the same state. <laughs> oh no! no. <laughs> yeah, no. no. I wanted a, I wanted a love story so bad. <laughs> no, no. I live with my um, significant other, and he's oh, almost okay. almost living sense. with his significant other. He spends a lot of time at her place more than he does at his place now. But he's in Florida now. Uh, I live in Minnesota, so. Okay, that that makes sense. I did I didn't know you remarried. I'm I'm being way too nosy. So essentially, no, that's okay. neither one of us is, are remarried. Yeah, so I live with my. So I I work. He's I he's he's my boyfriend. I just hate saying that. You know, it's like I'm wow. 60 years old and I have a boyfriend. <laughs> you look great for 60, by the way. Oh, thank freaking you. phenomenal. Um, oh, thanks. Um, if you're ever single, you should call me. I'm just joking. Um. Why, why not marry? Be like dating my daughter, Sage. <laughs> no, no, listen. It, age is just a number. That's age. what they say. You know what I'm uh, saying? You're only as old as the person you feel. Oh, then I'm like 12. <laughs> <laughs> How old do you feel? Your wife's 12. No, you I'm see, 12. No, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah, You're yeah. only as old oh, as the person yeah. you're feeling up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I thought I thought you said you're only as old as the person you feel like. Right. I, so, I realize that's what you meant to say. But no, no, no. I'm uh, saying like, you know, uh, you know the men that are like 70 and they date like 30 year olds? Yes. I always say, well, you're only as old as the girl you're feeling. So hey, that's a hey, and then men, they they one hundred percent believe that. It, they got that 30 year old, they feel like they're 26, they take that Viagra. Listen, that's all they need is that pill. <laughs> Well, why, right. why wouldn't you remarry? Why, why not? Why not marry again? Oh, I have no desire. No, we've been together oh. for eight years, but I have no desire to get married. It, is uh, it that's like a, a whole nother subject because I don't believe in the institution of marriage, to be honest with you. But that's a whole nother podcast. Do, do you not believe in monogamy? No, I believe in monogamy. I'm an, I'm monogamous, monogamous. <laughs> uh, but but just but, not the paperwork. Yeah, it's just a man-made up thing that they needed to institute because, you know, guys back in whenever that were conquering countries, they used to go from one country to the next and take it over and they'd leave the women after they got them pregnant and they'd move on and they never came back. And then the moms, they're all left there taking care of the kids. So marriage was a way to keep the men around and mm. way for women to own land because they couldn't own land and they were bastard wives if they had kids. Out so it was just this whole thing. But none of the reasons that the men the institution of marriage was man made up by exists today. Like there's no reason for mm. it. You're blowing my mind right now. You're oh. absolutely blowing my mind. This okay. is phenomenal. Cause, cause I, I kind of, I kind of agree. I kind of agree that man, the whole thing of marriage is, it's weird. I, I guess nowadays you could say it kind of gives the person who is not the breadwinner a little bit of protection if that's the type of marriage you have where maybe one takes care of the kids and then um, let's just say the, the breadwinner just wakes up. It's like, you know, screw you. I'm gone. See ya. Good luck. You know, and this person just spent the past however 18 years raising kids. They don't have skills that are marketable or whatever. Now they're really that, screwed. I'm just going to stop you. Right there. That's not a marriage license. Mm. That's something you have with a, an attorney. It's like a will. It's like a beneficiary thing. It's like that's paperwork drawn up. If you guys are to split up, it doesn't have to be a marriage license. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I see those what you're are, saying. Those are prenups. Those are, you know, like, Hey, if we ever don't make it, 
I want to make sure you're taken care of. I'll give you this. I mean, that's, that's a separate document. That's not, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. A marriage license does give you those, but you can put all those things in place and protect yourself without the marriage license, you know, and, because another thing is <laughs> I'm going to just keep blowing your mind in my Let's opinion. Let's do it. Let's do we're, it. We're animals. We're mammals. Okay. Yeah. Mammals were never meant to pair up two by two and live happily ever after. It's yeah. very um, unnatural. I also think oftentimes it's unrealistic. And so, um, in what way? In what way? Yeah. Well, uh, in what way is it? You've unrealistic? had more than one partner in your life. I'm assuming besides your wife. Oh yeah. Be- before your wife. I, <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. Maybe during your wife. A lot of people have affairs, and that's why people have affairs. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> because. Animals aren't meant to pair up two by two and live happily ever after. I mean, we aren't monogamous beings. And now I'm not saying I don't believe in monogamy because I do, but I'm just saying it doesn't always work out for a lifetime. And we know that because of the divorce rates and, you know, people stay together because they're married and they have kids and they're miserable. I just don't think life should be like that. I think everybody should be able to be happy in life. And if you're miserable in a marriage, you should be able to walk away from it. So... And have okay. options. Marriage this, gives people that legitimacy to say, you know, this is it. This is you're the one for life. But a piece of paper can't make that happen. Th- this is a great point, and I think I think a lot of times from the usually it's the woman. I mean, listen, it it could go either way, but usually it's the woman from the woman's perspective. What I see a lot of times is is it is very significant to them because it's that next level of dedication. It's it's hey. We're boyfriend and girlfriend, but if you really loved me, you'd give me the ring. Um, but from what you, know you were what? talking about, go ahead. I just want to say this really quick. I believe in marriage. I shouldn't say I don't believe in marriage. I don't believe, for me, I don't believe in marriage for me at this point in my life, which is why yeah. I would never get married again. I, do, I believe in marriage. Like When I got married and I had kids, I think I did that the right way in the right order. Okay, Unfortunately, I ended, ended up in divorce. So I think marriage is viable and there is a lot of reasons people should get married. And I, I don't want to come off saying like, nobody should get married. I don't believe in it. I, I, that was a miss. I misstated that. It really works for some people. It does give people a comfort level. It gives people a sense of security. It makes, it feels traditional. It feels like the next step. I'm not, I don't want to take that away from everybody, anybody, because everybody's individual and everybody's got to do what's right for them. And I don't not believe in marriage for other people. I just don't believe in it for me at this point in my life. No, well, I'm glad you said it because I think a lot of people echo your feelings. And I think that it's great that you say that. Uh, what you were talking about with the, you know, mammals don't pair up two by two, you know, with the sexual partners. Listen, I think men feel this all the time and nobody talks about it because we get in so much freaking trouble with our wives. And, but, Whenever we get together, we talk about it. Listen, as a guy, and I don't think I'm a very, I don't think I'm abnormal guy, but I'm married. I love my wife to death. She's wonderful. She's the most wonderful person I've ever met. Genuinely amazing person. I still walk down the street and I want to have sex with everything with two legs. (laughs) 100%. I want to poke every moist hole I could find. And as guys... It's like, how do we live with this? Is So I'm just going to have to deny myself literally until the day I die. And this is a daunting task. This is something that like drive guys crazy. It's like, what? 
this is something that is a 100% deal breaker for a lot of guys. What are we supposed to do about that? And I talk to a lot of girls. Some girls do feel like this. I'm not saying that. But most that I talk to do not. And they are just so in love with this man. And they just want to sleep with him every night. And it's like, I think a lot of guys, whenever they get into marriage and they've been in there for X amount of years, they feel like I got the raw end of the stick here. Because it's like, man, you know, she's happy as could be. But I'm over here. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm like a caged animal. Listen, I just want to be unleashed on all these women, but I can't do nothing about it. Like, what what do you tell a guy in that situation, a married man? Start drinking, doing some drugs. <laughs> you're you heard it here a, first. You're going to need a maladaptive coping skill. No, <laughs> you know I don't mean that at all. <laughs> of course, of course, we're playing. Yeah. Um, and that's an excuse for a lot of people, you know, oh, if you had my wife, you'd drink too, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, I, you know, that's, that it's, it's personal for everybody. You know, some people come to the conclusion that we need to have an open marriage. You know, some people say, yeah. you know, I'll do better in my marriage if I'm able to do this out there. And they have perfect, I, I know, I know couples that in their 40s and 50s decided they need to have an open marriage and they're happier and more committed to each other than ever. It works for them. You know, that wouldn't work for me. I don't like to share, but, (laughs) 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 Um, but it works for some people. So you just got to do what works for you. But you know, like you're saying, I mean, is it fair to deprive somebody of something that they want? I I don't know. It's, it's all, you know, give and take, right? You love your wife. You want to make her happy. You got to give that up. This is uh, this is not the answer I was hoping you would say. Uh, <laughs> this is not what I was hoping you would say. Does a is there like a similar struggle from a woman's perspective that y'all go through? Uh, I think, like you said, it's different for everybody. Uh, I will say I was more on the lines of you than I was some of those women you've talked to. Yeah. So um, I've yeah I you know for me that was a struggle. Um, but everybody's different. So do you think it's, would, would you look at a man as being crazy if he was like, Hey, yeah, I, uh, I had a good wife and all, but I left her because I want to sleep with a bunch of other women. <laughs> Is that crazy? No, it's not. Yeah. That it, it would be crazy. But you know what? I tell people all the time, there's nothing wrong with being monogamous and there's nothing wrong with having an unsatiable desire for lots of different women. You just can't do both at the same time. Yeah. You know, you got to figure out what's going to make everybody deserves to be happy in life. So what's going to make you happy? And sometimes if you think that through, okay, I know what I have with my wife. Let's think it through. What would I have if I didn't have my wife? Because I do believe in transparency. I don't believe in, you know, lying because that's very hurtful um, and causes a lot of damage. But if you think through, like if I got rid of my wife because I wanted to explore this kind of a lifestyle, you know, what's the end game there? Where's that going to get me? How much, how happy am I going to be with that? So I say, try to figure out how to make all those desires work with your wife, you know, have her buy a wig, you know, have her put on a different outfit. Like she's from Poland or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. You know, just, I mean, I guess that's why there's role playing and fantasy and all that kind of stuff, but you just can't have both at the same time unless you're both on board with it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think I will, this is... I, I have one more thing to say about that. Yeah, go ahead. My parents had an open marriage, okay? Because my yeah. dad was a sex addict. And um, when my parents got divorced, 
my and I asked my dad why because he was the one that told me they were getting divorced. He said, because when you have an open marriage, somebody will always find someone they want to go back to more for. Whoa! Right? Yeah. So keep that in mind, Chris. That is, uh, and that's I think especially from the woman's perspective, I can complete our, yeah, I can, I can understand because I think like my wife is, she's more worried about me falling in love with another woman than she is, you know, me penetrating another woman physically. Um, and that's her biggest fear. And my biggest fear is the opposite. So it's, it is weird. It is a weird trade-off that, you know, I, I guess, like, like you said, there's compromises, you know, Hey, I could divorce my wife to go bang a bunch of hookers, but you know, I probably just empty. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm eventually going to be empty. Um, and I just lost probably the most wonderful woman I've ever met in my life. So, yeah. So the best thing you can do is just talk about that stuff when that's cropping up for you, you know, just be transparent, let her know, you know, and, come up with a solution for the, between the two of you, you know, maybe you just yeah. need to go in a back alley somewhere and do something different, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and we do. I, and, and that, that is a good thing about our relationship is I am very transparent. She knows that I want to poke every moist hole. She knows that, um, <laughs> I want awesome. to, yeah, no, she, she knows all of this and I don't try to flaunt it. Like if I see a beautiful woman, I'm like, I don't like nudge her. I'm like, man, I sure would love to fuck her. Um, I don't say stuff like that cause that, that is rude. But, um, if, if she says something like, oh, wow, look at her pants. I'm like, yeah, I seen them like a long time ago. I, I wish I could be inside her pants right now, <laughs> but, but she, she knows, oh she knows all of these things and we've talked about compromises and stuff like that. Um, awesome. but I, I just think it's so interesting to hear you, a woman say that because talking to other guys this is so common. It's like, man, like, you know, like, yeah, my wife's beautiful and all, but I would, I would give every dollar I have just to be with some random hooker for just one night. I will tell you something you can have to look forward to when you get older. I do believe that will change some, you oh, know, really? not your sex drive, not your, um, you know, willingness and wanting to have sex, but your desire to do it with every other person you see. I think starts to change when you get older. Is there any steps like should maybe I, I don't know. I am not a sex therapist. I'm just say that. <laughs> no, no, yes, you are. But go you ahead are my sex therapist. <laughs> yes, you are. Now you are. You got all the hats. Uh, is, is there anything to like speed up that process? Maybe um, have more sex with my wife, less sex, different types of sex, stay away from, I don't know, pretty women or... <laughs> Is there any way to speed that up that you know of? I have no answer for that, Chris. I'm so sorry. It's yeah. okay. It's okay. No. Listen, but I, I do believe just being transparent, talking about talking with it about your wife, coming up with solutions together, figuring out ways to work through that, her being open to having conversations about that. It's all yeah. awesome. Yeah, that is good. I, I think it's because women are just so freaking beautiful. The, the, the skinny ones, the fat ones, the old ones, the young ones, all of them, not too young. Uh, all of them is, yeah, it's, um, it's just like, man, I, there's just something in our brain. It's just weird. Um, 
but to get, I guess, back on track here, we, we, right. we digressed. So let's say I am a family member of a person that is addicted and maybe it hasn't ruined their life yet. They're not at rock bottom. What advice would you give me to help them? Well, first of all, rock bottom is not an event. Like some people think, oh, you know, if they lose their job, oh, then then I'll get in there and intervene. Oh, if they, you know, wreck their car. Okay. So the bottom is really a state of mind. It's really um, a feeling. It's not an event. And I don't ever recommend waiting till your version of rock bottom hits because oftentimes it can be too late. Um, So there's no wrong time. It's never too early to try to intervene. I don't suggest doing it alone because you don't know the right words. You don't know how to approach it properly. You probably have some, a lot of resentments, anger, frustration. You've probably uh, tried everything you could think of to get them to slow down or stop or go to treatment or whatever. So um, it does take a special language and ability to communicate in a way that helps them to see that it's what they want. Because like you said, you would do, you're not going to do it for somebody else. It never works. You got to right. appeal to them to want to do it for themselves and show them the life of their dreams is on a path that they are not on. And the path that they're on is just going to lead to more destruction. And I'm here to help you get on that path to the life of your dreams. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, th- there's so much help out there. There's, it's, this is just such a huge issue right now all over our country. Um, and there's so many resources. And, um, there, you know, you said you went to an addiction therapist. There's, you know, coaches. There's interventionists. There's treatment centers that have family programs. There's Al-Anon. There's Families Anonymous. There's Naranon. Like, there's so many resources out there um, to help people cope and steer their loved one um, to recovery. And I always, always say... Don't wait for your loved one to get into recovery before you start your own journey of recovery. And I don't, and recovery might sound weird to a family member because they're like, wait a minute, I don't have the problem. What do I need to recover for? But everybody needs to find their own recovery because you're recovering from the maladaptive role you taken on because you're, you know, engaged with an addict. Everybody changes. So um, uh, start your recovery, start doing things differently, find out what it is you're doing that's actually hindering your loved one from getting the help they need because as much as a family member thinks they're doing all the right things i guarantee you they're doing all the wrong things yeah so to learn the tools that you need to do for yourself will and getting into your own recovery steers the loved one to finding their recovery it makes them want to do some changing because if you keep doing the same old same old you can expect the same old same old so somebody's got to step out of that role first and i guarantee you it's not going to be the addicted person because they're comfortable and you're making it comfortable for them. You just have no idea how you're making it comfortable. And those are the things we uncover um, in coaching with families. Would it, would it be best to take a, uh, a tone of, hey, you're fucking up your life. You know, you need to do something. What are you doing? Or maybe a, a different type of more encouraging tone of, hey, I remember when you were more happy. Don't you want to be happy? Like, what's the best tone to take whenever you approach the subject with a family member? Yeah, well, I just want to remind you that if someone came to you when you were at your low and they said you're fucking up your life, you would have said, <laughs> I don't care. Clearly, I'm fucking up my life. Does it look like I care? <laughs> so, That's a good point. That's not a good, point. A good tone. <laughs> 
No, all you can do is come at them with empathy, with love, with care, um, compassion. Um, you know, they're not doing it because they want to hurt themselves or hurt you. I always say that it's not that they're self-destructive. They've just picked up a self-destructive maladaptive coping skill. So, um, you know, you want to appeal to the person they, they used to be. You don't want to speak to the, the addiction because the addiction, if you speak to that, that's just like you're fucking up your life. You know, yeah, that's just yeah. going to piss them off more. So remembering what they're good at, where their talents lied, uh, what they were like before, um, you know, it's very hard for any family member to know the right words to come up with to appeal to their loved one to want to change. But I promise you coming at them with love and compassion and then putting the right boundaries and stopping the enabling, um, those are the things that can make a difference. That's so beautiful. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Oh, man. <laughs> you are really good at what you do. Um, oh, thank you. Dana, thank you so much for coming talking with me, being my addiction therapist, my, uh, my marriage counselor, uh, <coughs> you, you, you truly have, um, a gift. Uh, where, where can people find you on, on the internet? So, um, a couple different websites. My family coaching practice is at danagolden.com. Um, there's also a quiz. If you go there that will identify your role within your family with an addict, because there are six identified roles. There's the caretaker, the mascot, the scapegoat. So there's six roles that people take on in relation to an addict. You can take that quiz on my website and it really helps you understand the characteristics that you're doing and then gives you some suggestions of how to step out of those roles. So um, that's at danagolden.com. For interventions and um, recovery services, sober companions, sober escorts, uh, things of that nature, it's uh, liferecoveryinterventions.com. Uh, either website, you can book in an appointment. We will talk to anybody um, at any time if you need direction, if you need resources, um, if you need help, if you want to get your loved one moved into recovery or into treatment. I'm happy to talk to anybody that's struggling, um, whether you're the struggling addict or you are a family member. Of course. And I'll put all of those in the show notes so people can go ahead and click on them. Uh, anything else you want me to add, of course, let me know. Dana, you're awesome. I hope you have a great night and thanks for coming on. You too, Chris. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.